Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Before he was A.J. Hench, manager of the World Series champion Astros, Hench was well on his way to being the next big thing in Major League Baseball for another reason. He was a can't-miss prospect from Oklahoma who was headed to Stanford for a brief stop on his way to glory on the diamond. Then real life came and got in the way. First, with the death of his father at the age of 39, followed by an unremarkable seven-year career in the majors. But Hinch never doubted himself. He knew the game, even if he couldn't play the game. Diamondbacks GM Josh Burns thought so, too. Making him the unprecedented move of promoting Hinch from front office position in player development to manager at 34 years old, a position Hinch had never held in his life. While that initial experiment didn't work out, the seeds had been sown for a revolution in thinking, an approach that was part psychology, part analytics, and a whole lot of fun that took the Astros to their first world championship in team history. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Tim Kuhn as we talk about the evolution of MLB's managerial revolution. Now we present the second act of A.J. Hinch by Tim Kuhn. George Springer had snagged thousands of baseballs out of the air through his 28 years, most without a thought, but he had never caught one that possessed such power. Catching this ball, a lazy, unambitious sigh off the bat of the Yankees' Greg Bird, required conscious effort. As soon as it landed in Springer's glove, ending the American League Championship Series, the calculus changed. Now, what to do with it? He jammed it into his pocket and started to run toward the pitcher's mound where everyone associated with the Astros was about to meet. But this baseball, bouncing with every step, was the heaviest five and a quarter ounces he could ever imagine. This baseball carried responsibility. It was tempting but hubristic to keep it for himself. It would be cool to have, but what had he done to deserve it? Chance had sent the ball his way, not fate. He, one of 25, had simply caught it. Springer ran and screamed and surveyed the aftermath of victory. For the most part, he got what he expected, jubilation and relief, and maybe a glint of disbelief from his teammates as they rushed out of the first base dugout like bats from a cave. But toward the end of the exodus, Springer saw A.J. Hinch race out of the dugout, a first-to-third smile on his face. It's strange how many memories that smile evoked and how quickly they arrived, the way Hinch managed the shredded nerves and panicked uncertainty during Hurricane Harvey, the text messages Springer and his teammates received when Hinch knew they were struggling or needed a day off, the quiet equanimity, it's okay to fail, Springer says, just know why you failed, that sanded away the rough edges of a long season. Springer might not have known all the particulars, how Hinch's uber-prospect status in high school and at Stanford was overshadowed by an underwhelming professional career, how he almost quit and stayed home in Midwest City, Oklahoma, after his father died before he could watch Hinch play a college game, how his brief and bitter first managerial experience in Arizona made him wonder whether he would ever get, or even want, another chance. But in those seconds between shallow center field and the mound, Springer's mind flashed back to the speech Hinch gave the Astros in spring training of 2015, his first year as manager. Hinch had taken over a young team in peak growing season with burgeoning talent but three 100-loss seasons in its past four. Springer was about to start his first full season. Jose Altuve was a star. Carlos Correa was raking his way through the minors. And one of Hinch's first questions after getting the job was, 
Why isn't anybody around here talking about winning? He asked it with a mystified tone to everyone in the front office, and then, standing before his players before they'd played a game for him, he said, We're not doing this just to get better. We're doing this to win. The talent in this room is good enough to win right now, and it's not okay to be mediocre anymore. Watching his manager run onto the field, arms raised and inhibitions flung aside, Springer thought, Here we are, winning. The smile sealed it. Hinch would get the baseball. Springer got the ball authenticated and found Hinch and his wife Aaron. He handed Hinch the ball and hugged him before turning to Aaron. Make sure they don't take this ball from him, Springer told her. And knowing his manager's personality, Springer felt obligated to deliver an additional instruction. And make sure he doesn't give it to somebody else. He deserves this. Throughout the history of baseball, there has always been a defined protocol to becoming a big league manager. First, he is a player, often of undistinguished talent but excessively visible tenacity. He becomes a manager in the low minors, imparting hard-won wisdom along the two-lane state routes of America. From there, he builds a resume, eyes forward, putting a foot on one rung while hovering over the next. The years pass, the jobs improve. Triple-A manager, big league hitting coach, big league bench coach, and then, finally, a chance. These rules have been the game's catechism. In 2009, at the age of 34, Hinch became an unwitting disruptor. He was the Diamondbacks' director of player development when the team's general manager, Josh Burns, offered him a managing job. Hinch, who had never coached or managed at any level, thought he was being asked to run one of the minor league teams. No, Burns said, he wanted Hinch to take over for Bob Melvin in Phoenix. It was unexpected and more than a little weird. For decades, the separation between the manager's office and the front office was sacrosanct. One controls the lineup card, the other the roster. Even Billy Bean, whose moneyball philosophy included significant input on managerial decisions, never hired a manager with no managerial experience. When Josh made that decision, I was rooting for them, says Astros general manager Jeff Lunau, then with the Cardinals. It was always worth rooting for people who are on the outside edge, pushing the envelope and not following the traditional model. Once Hinch agreed to take the job, he ran off to South Bend, Indiana to watch Class A ball for a week to think about it and signed on only after being convinced Melvin was gone either way. His approach was more an impression of the job than the job itself. Against his nature, he affected a Mount Rushmore visage. How would a manager act, he asked himself. It got into his head a little bit. Visions of baseball's stoic leaders unspooled in his mind, hard, grizzled men who never show weakness or emotion, stern, serious, never underestimating their own self-importance. I was trying to be what I perceived to be managerial, Hinch says. From the very beginning, I had to justify just the sheer fact that I had the job. That created a shell around me that is a little bit different than the true me. Some of the players in the dugout were older than he was. He had hosted Eric Burns on a recruiting trip to Stanford. Later, they became teammates in Oakland, and now he was deciding whether and how much Burns would play. Whatever his internal battle was back then, he did a great job of hiding it from his players, says former D-back Adam LaRoche. I never picked up on any of it. I love talking life with him, and he'd do it 20 minutes before a game or all day in the offseason. Hinch brought innovative and sometimes unpopular ideas down from the front office. He used his best relievers in high-leverage spots rather than preordained roles. He made out the lineup card with an eye on analytics. He relegated an older catcher, Chris Snyder, who was well-liked by pitchers, and promoted a younger one, Miguel Montero, he thought could be a star. 
It didn't matter that the bigger notions, bullpen usage, analytics, were just three or four years away from becoming accepted practice, and the smaller notions, Montero for one, proved wise. To critics, he wasn't an innovator or a shrewd evaluator of talent. He was a first-time manager with no experience, and everything, seriously everything, was filtered through that lens. The first time a player was ejected under his watch, he was asked afterward whether he felt he could have gotten onto the field and separated his player from the umpire faster. To the media, if anything went wrong, it wasn't the move that was wrong, Hinch says. It was the wrong move by a guy with no experience who was doing it for the first time. It just attached to every single thing. He once brought J.C. Gutierrez, the right-handed eighth-inning guy, into a game in the seventh inning to face three right-handed hitters in the middle of a lineup. In 2010, this was borderline revolutionary. Gutierrez got through the seventh easily enough for Hinch to leave him out for the eighth, which he rolled through to set up an easy Chad Qual save. After the game, a buoyant Josh Burns was thrilled to see research and common sense minister to a bullpen awaiting hospice. He bounded into the manager's office and asked whether reporters had noticed the mastery of his bullpen usage. Hinch just shook his head. We were trying to be more dynamic with seeking out matchups and choosing our relievers by game situation, Burns said. You could say we were ahead of our time. We tried to knock some walls down between the manager's office and the front office. The word trailblazer sounds funny to Hinch, who considers himself more of a forward scout running ahead and finding danger. He never got a full season in Arizona. He, along with Burns, was fired in July of 2010 after going 89-123. and A first-time manager with a tenure as short as and unsuccessful as Hinch's doesn't always get a second chance. Failure like this, quick, thorough, and the result of a professional leap many believe was unearned, is a disease whose first symptom is often death. He went to San Diego and got back into front office work as the assistant GM, but the Arizona thing nagged. He dipped his toe in by interviewing with the Astros before they hired Bo Porter in 2012, Saved A.J. a couple hundred losses, Lunau says now. A year later, he met with the Cubs, who hired Rich Renteria. In his second interview with the Astros, before the 2015 season, after it became clear he was close to securing the job, Hinch asked Lunau, What's your biggest fear with me? We're not sure how you're going to handle players, Lunau said. We know everything else. Stanford degree, information skills, people skills, good with the media. But how are you going to handle players? This was the ghost of Arizona talking, and Hinch had to work to control himself. I'll be fine with the players, he said as nicely as he could. He went home and vented to Aaron. Are you shitting me? My number one skill is going to be dealing with players. If that's what you're worried about, you should give me the job. I'll get the players. He stops and shakes his head. I'm just glad Jeff gave me the chance. Luno had cause for confidence. His former club, the Cardinals, had flourished after they hired Mike Matheny in 2011, despite his having no previous managerial experience above Little League. And the Tigers had won the AL Central in 2014 with first-time manager Brad Osmus, four seasons removed from his retirement as an active player. The wall between the front office and the manager's office is now a permeable membrane. In Los Angeles, Dodgers president Andrew Friedman and general manager Farhan Zaidi, backpacks and laptops at the ready, make their way into Dave Roberts' office before and after nearly every game. I was ahead of my time, Hinch says with a clipped laugh. I disrupted the natural flow of building a career. Hinch's success, the Astros went from 70 and 92 and 14 to a wild card winning 86 and 76 and 15, 
has earned him baseball's most facile and unilluminating reputation, player's manager, which evokes images of backslapping and towel snapping and a lovable refusal to act your age. It feels almost ironic in Hinch's case, considering that a few years before, his reputation as a stat head was the very thing that gave Lunau pause. I love players, Hinch says. I love being part of their lives. I love developing relationships. They're not all perfect friends or perfect guys, but I really enjoy seeing them happy. Alex Bregman, the number two pick in the 2015 draft, was promoted to the Astros in late July of 2016, and there were immediate expectations. Bregman responded with a grim debut, going 0 for 17 in his first five games, a stretch that suggested he might have been pushed too early. Hinch's response appeared to be counterintuitive and maybe counterproductive. He moved Bregman up in the lineup, from 7th to 2nd. Bregman got his first hit and hit 288 the rest of the season. How many managers would move a rookie from 7th to 2nd when he hadn't had a hit, Lunau asks, laughing. Apparently, one who understands psychology and motivation and the individual. Alex sweats confidence, Hinch says. It's a lovable trait that some people can't get away with, but he can. Brody Van Wagenen is Hinch's agent, an ex-Stanford teammate, and the best man at Aaron and AJ's wedding. I think AJ spent most of his time using his psychology degree on himself, he says, and now he's getting the opportunity to use it on other people. The sheer lunacy of the Astros-Dodgers World Series lessened the urge to dissect every strategic decision, and Hinch might be remembered most for the look he wore in the dugout, a bemused smile that suggested he couldn't make any sense of it either. He's good at putting on the right face at the right time, Van Wagenen says. No one should mistake that for a lack of competitiveness. Springer's favorite anecdote from the World Series is telling of Hinch's marriage of player management and analytics. After a 3-for-26 ALCS, Springer struck out four times in Game 1, and in the news conference afterward, Hinch was presented with two options, A, bench Springer, or B, slide him down from the leadoff spot in the order to an allegedly less pressure-filled location. One thing I tell players all the time is, I have your back, Hinch says. I wasn't going to abandon George. He'd had one bad game. Why on earth would I move him in the order? Hinch sent Springer a text. It's not about the 0 for 4 or the strikeouts. It's about you going out and having fun and enjoying the best time of your baseball life because you never know if you're going to get back here. I've got your back. You're going to hit first tomorrow and set the tone for our team. Springer, the World Series MVP who hit five homers and drove in seven runs over the next six games, responded immediately, I'll be there for you. In the photo, taken less than an hour after the Astros defeated the Dodgers in Game 7 of the World Series, Springer is being interviewed in the center of the platform in the middle of the Dodger Stadium infield, and Hinch is off to the side looking straight up into the night sky. When I see that photo, it's like an out-of-body experience, Hinch says. I know exactly what I was doing, sharing the moment with my dad. Hinch, the National High School Player of the Year from Oklahoma, was a freshman at Stanford in February of 1993, when a Stanford administrator came down to the field and called head coach Mark Marquess away from practice. Marquess, known as Nine for his uniform number, never allowed interruptions, and soon every player was asking, where's Nine going? When he got to his office, Marquess was told Hinch's mother Becky needed to talk to him. Becky told him that A.J.'s father, Dennis, had died of a heart attack at age 39. Too distraught to talk to her son, she asked Marquess to deliver the news. Toughest thing I had to do in all my years of coaching, Marquis says. 
Dennis Hinch worked for a funeral home and later a concrete contractor. He worked himself to death, A.J. says. Dennis's children, A.J. has an older sister, Angie, were his outlet. On A.J.'s 16th birthday, he offered his son a choice, a car or a batting cage. With gentle nudging from his father, A.J. chose the cage. I should have bought a slider machine, too, he jokes. When he got off the plane in Oklahoma City for the funeral, he decided not to return to Stanford. My family talked me out of it, he says. They told me there was no reason to stop life. It was going to be an altered life. Instead of A.J. moving home, Becky moved to Palo Alto, where she got a job at the university. She remained there until A.J. graduated with a degree in psychology and was drafted in the third round by the athletics and represented himself. I always had the feeling I could do anything, he says, in his first contract negotiation. My dad was my first thought when we made the last out of the World Series, Hinch says. He was the whole reason I loved baseball. I get my work ethic from him. I get my stubbornness from him. My love for the game came through his eyes originally. He was my best and toughest coach. He was my buddy that I talked baseball with all the time. He never saw me play in college or professional, certainly not manage, but he's been close to me the whole time. Before he returned to Stanford after the funeral, A.J. was cleaning out his father's briefcase when he opened a sleeve and found an airline ticket. Without telling his son, Dennis had bought a round-trip ticket from Oklahoma City to San Francisco to watch A.J. play in college for the first time. Finding that ticket, that was the most touching thing, A.J. says. He was going to surprise me and come out and see me play. That airline ticket, its dot matrix printing like something from another geologic era, is in a memory box in Hinch's home office. Now 43, Hinch takes it out every once in a while and thinks about his dad, and then his own two daughters, and everything that's happened since Dennis Hinch slid that ticket into his briefcase. It's mid-November, the memory of one season fresh, the next too distant to entertain. A.J. and Aaron are sitting in the great room of their monstrous home in the Houston suburb, the Woodlands, a place archaeologists may someday christen the Easter Island of McMansions. The kids are at school, and a young guy carrying a bucket of chemicals appears in the backyard to service the pool. Nobody seems to notice. A.J. and Aaron have been together since he was a cocky AAA catcher with the athletics and she was a student at Arizona State. On their first date, he thought he'd impress her by saying, I'm going to be in the big leagues next year. She nodded, assuming from the pride in his voice that it was something she should be happy to learn. Okay, she said, but what are the big leagues? On this day, though, the conversation never strays from one topic, how cool it is that the Astros won the World Series. It wasn't only the championship, though. The Hinches and everyone else in this town are convinced it meant something more, that this team, with its approachable core of young players and its humane response to Hurricane Harvey, left an indelible mark on the city. In fact, the Hinch's favorite image from the postseason isn't from the field. It's a photo of a Houston family sitting in a badly damaged house, floors bare, walls down to the studs, cooler as coffee table in the middle of the room, watching playoff games on a TV run by a generator. In 2015, I stood in front of our team and said, Anybody in the room that has been to the World Series, raise your hand, AJ says. There were one or two older guys, and that's it. Well, I can't use that speech anymore. He laughs a little and for a moment stares off into the middle distance, as if he's starting the process of crafting a new speech. 
At some point, I'll have to be the bad guy that tells everybody we're going to stop talking about it and move forward. They're not there yet, though. Just that day, Aaron stood in line at a sporting goods store along with several customers wearing and buying Astros gear. I just stood there and watched with a smile on my face, Aaron says. It just felt so cool. Did you tell them who you are, I ask? Oh no, she says, embarrassed by the mere idea of it. That's not me. AJ throws his hands out and stares at Aaron. Honey, he says with mock annoyance, don't you know? Now's the time to tell them. Now joining me is ESPN senior writer Tim Kuhn. Tim, welcome. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. So getting right into this, um, the whole story starts with that anecdote about uh, George Springer and that final ball from the ALCS that he had and how he's like, I know our manager, I know A.J. Hinch deserves that ball. And I'm sure no one else on the Astros would have disagreed with him. Do you think part of all of this, like the culmination of last year, is that Hinch had achieved something that's so difficult and delicate to reach as a leader where it seems the people under them want to do their jobs because they don't want to disappoint A.J. Hinch and they don't want to let him down. They're doing it for him in a way. Uh, I think there's a lot of that at work with that team. I think that all the things that they went through last year with the hurricane and with all kinds of different, just the different uh, ups and downs of the season and the fact that uh, they kind of, the, the core of that team kind of grew up with AJ, you know, the, the, the core of, of Springer and Correa and Altuve. And uh, they, they have a real bond there. And, and he kind of set them on the path toward winning. And I think that that you're right. There's a feeling that, that, you know, he expected this of them and they learned to expect nothing less of themselves. Now, how much of being able to create this atmosphere is sort of tied to how Hinch feels about his own father. And by that, uh, the story you told about how he picked the batting cage over the car, because in a way he didn't want to let his father down. That's very true. And I think there was a, there was such a bond between, between AJ and his father. And, and uh, you know, it was as, as he, he has a, a very remarkable quote in the story where he explains how his father was his first and toughest coach and his, mm-hmm. his baseball buddy and his best friend. And, and uh, his father tragically died at age 39 when AJ was a, a freshman at Stanford about ready to play his second, I believe game for Stanford. Um, and there's a lot at work there. I think that, that, AJ's father Dennis is is very prominent in his life and it is also prominent in the way that he deals with his players and the way he sees them and the, the sort of father figure thing that we talk a lot about with with coaches and managers is is actually it's very real inside him. And how much uh and then when he moved on from his you know after Stanford and a not very remarkable major league career, and he moved on, and he finally got the job uh, to manage in Arizona. And how much of you, for what he has become, how much do you think his failure in Arizona was tied to him sort of not being himself, but being, you know, sort of the peace part Franken manager he sort of put together in his head, as you say about like when he went to, when he was proposed for the job, and he went to watch Class A ball in South Bend, Indiana, and sort of came up in his head with what he should be and what he should be wasn't who he was. It really affected him. And I think the circumstances that led to him getting the job in Arizona 
almost set him up for failure. And I, I don't know that it was anyone's fault necessarily, but mm-hmm. Bob Melvin was, was very well liked uh, despite the fact that the team wasn't doing well at the time in 2009. Uh, AJ was, was in the front office as a uh, player development guy. And I think that he just upended the normal course. You know, as, as, I, as I write in there, there's sort of this catechism in baseball of, of the, the process that, that managers take and the, and the way that mm-hmm. they go from, you know, minor league manager to hitting coach to, to bench coach. And there's just sort of this, this system in place that he upended. He was one of the first guys to do it. It's become more common now, but right. I think that that was his, in his mind, he wasn't entirely sure that he deserved that job. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that everything that was swirling around him, all the questions. And as he said that he perceived everything as, um, every criticism he got as it was not just that he made a bad decision. It was a first time manager with no experience who made the wrong decision. Right, and he felt, exactly. he felt that very deeply. And I think it, it really, it really kind of trailed him for a while and, and nagged at him. Um, and was something that he was very determined to, to shake when he got this second chance. Do you think, uh, being sort of that can't miss prospect growing up and then not having the major league career he and his father envisioned. Do you think that's one of the, the bigger parts that sort of makes him a better manager in the sense that, um, you have a sport where failing 70, 70% of the time still can get you to the Hall of Fame and his ability to have the mental ability in hindsight to constantly sort of put failure behind him. Like, does that, do you think that makes him more valuable? In what, I in think what it does, and I think it, I, I think, Mike, that it really colors his thinking as well. And I think you know, I, I go back to, you know, the the, the over referenced Moneyball book, where there was so much of Billy Bean's career that was failure and was sort of identifying failure and and how he was this can't miss prospect who, who missed, you know, and and his his perception of what it took to succeed changed because of his own failure. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be a prevailing theme among in AJ's life as well, because I think the fact that he understood just how good that you had to be to really make it was one factor in his ability to relate to players and to understand players. And, you know, I also think it's part of what drives him. A big part of what drives him is that failure. Um, he, he didn't, he didn't succeed as a player, as, as he says, sort of wryly, I will put uh, my amateur career up against anybody's, you know, but that's <laughs> sort of a, that, that's a little bit of a, a Pyrrhic victory for him. And I, I think that, that what he's driven by now is the idea that he can achieve as a manager, perhaps some things that he failed to achieve as a player. Does this perseverance or, you know, he's like his gut instinct that like, I always, I always knew the game. Uh, does that change you feel now that he is a World Series champion? You know, embolden him or frighten him? I guess. Well, I, I caught a little bit of a of a not an I told you so, but you know, a little bit of vindication in his tone, and 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 he's he's justified in having that. You know, that's his right, and I think right. it's uh, you know, it's something that that he's definitely earned. Um, and, and you know, I think I think it's sort of emboldened him a little bit. I think it's it's provided some validation in his mind that, you know what, I was, I was on the right path and, and I knew that, that I could do this and it didn't matter that I didn't 
coach in the minor leagues or I never, you know, I never was a, on a bench as a, as a hitting coach or a bench coach. And, you know, I, I think now the, the world of, of Major League Baseball has changed along with it. There's There has been more of an understanding that, that the wall between the front office and the manager's office has been broken down some. And I think that it's made the it's made the game a friendlier place for someone like AJ Hinch and then his his success has sort of made given him the validation he needs to to sort of go forward doing the same things now imitation obviously is the greatest form of flattery so to your point that you just made like is this the new norm i mean like like we're like like there's a new common thread of just do you know the game not necessarily have you the whole aspect of paying your dues is now out the window. I think it's it's possible that this will become uh, uh, more normal. Whether it's the new norm or not, it, it remains to be seen. But I do think that there is a there's definitely a trend in baseball that managers need to be at least conversant in things that normally were the domain of the front office, the, the mm-hmm. analytics and different statistical things, and and just. Uh, that that merging of those two is is very apparent. Even though Dave Roberts kind of had the the coaching experience before he ended up in in uh, in Los Angeles, his his role is very similar to Hinch's. And you know the 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 Dodgers have very strong input from the front office from from Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi. They're, they're both. I spent a lot of time with them last year, and, and those two guys were in his office almost every game, before and after. And so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on where there, there's this uh, this understanding that that managers can't get away with just you know having the center fielder lead off and the second baseman hit second. You know, I mean, there's got to be some there, there's got to be some understanding of what guys can do and and how they fit in and you know, it's obviously extended to the to the pitching and and times through the lineup. All those things have become something that that front offices expect managers to know. So, from the uh, the psychology part of it that we heard a lot in the story, does does AJ is he has he continued to pursue like an informal study of psychology, or is it, does, is there more that he reads into or try to? educate himself more on it to be better besides be just saying, you know, as, as you point out in the piece, it's okay to fail. Just know why you failed. He, he's, he's a well-read guy. And I think that that extends beyond books. <laughs> I think he's a well-read guy in terms of reading people. And I, I think that he prides himself on sort of understanding situations, understanding mm-hmm. individuals. Um, there's the, the story of, of, Springer himself being what three for 26 in the ALCS and striking out four times in the first game of the world series. And, you know, AJ said that he was asked after the, after game one, you know, are you going to, are you going to bench him? Are you going to drop him in the lineup? And it hadn't even occurred to him. And so his first thought was, well, if I'm hearing this, then George is most likely hearing it too. So the first thing he did when he left, he saw that Springer was out of the clubhouse. So he sent him a, a long text, basically reaffirming his confidence in George and, and, you know, obviously what happened after that, whether it's cause and effect or not, there was a definite uh, change in Springer's performance after that, as he went on to become the MVP. So, you know, I think that it's, 
it, it's that sort of that sort of thing. I think is is more of of sort of the ongoing study. You know, is is sort of you know he's, he's got kind of his own twenty five man longitudinal study at work in the clubhouse. Right. And how much in the there's a balance there too, and how in the importance of that, and going back to what we said earlier about the delicate ability to get um, to get people to want to play and not disappoint you. There also there's the balance between going out and doing something like that for Springer, but then also at the same time, what he was praised for in his brief time in Arizona, which you know, oh, wait, I'm going to bring this guy in in the seventh inning, even though he's my eighth inning pitcher. So, do you think that is there? Being able to like, do like basically earn, does he basically earn the trust to do the latter, which is be more clinical and analytical by doing the former, which is being sort of like the informal team psychologist? No, I, I definitely think so, and I and I think that it's something that that success breeds that license. You know, if you're if you're successful, then people see that you're not just doing something randomly. Um, you know, he, part, part of the psychology and part of this, this, you know, study, if you want to call it is also knowing when you can disappoint someone. Mm-hmm. Um, he disappointed his closers in the world series. You know, Luke Gregerson was not happy with him and Giles wasn't happy with him because, yeah. you know, he let McCullers finish games and he didn't, he didn't abide by that, by the, the conventional strategy in the, in the world series either. Um, he didn't do the the sort of heartwarming thing and and give Carlos Beltran a start, you know, in his only, you know, that this swan song of his career and, and becoming a you know a World Series winner in his final season. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think there is some, I think there is a balance, and I think that you have to be strong in your convictions and 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 as he says, he has to be himself, and I and I think that that is one of the big changes from his first go round in Arizona to this one is that he feels a lot more confident in his decisions because he feels he's making them as himself and rather, rather than as some perception of what a manager should be. Now, I know you mentioned it was more, com- I mean, you said like the, I told you so tone. I know that's more confidence, but uh, Hinch's wife, Erin and her, you tell that brief story near the end about her unwillingness to sort of be recognized when Houston Astros, uh, Love was at fever pitch. And it seems like another key part of this psychological puzzle that works. How important is staying grounded and her ability to keep him grounded to their continued success? Oh, I, I think it's vital. And I, and I, you know, it's funny because when they first met, he was, they were on a, on an arranged date that friends hooked them up together. And, and he was a triple A guy with the A's and, and his, you know, his big, <laughs> his big money line was, Hey, I'm going to be in the big leagues next year. And, uh, <laughs> you know, her response was, uh, yeah, I guess that sounds great. But what is that? Cause she had no idea about baseball. She didn't grow up. She grew up in a family of girls and she grew up without that, uh, you know, without the connection to, to baseball or, or mm-hmm. really sports. Obviously that's changed quite a bit, but yeah, that was, um, that was part of, of what sort of grounded him. And, and I would assume a, appealed to him about her and, and, and likewise is that they were very different. They had different takes on things and, and different viewpoints of, of what, 
you know, what, what life was all about at that time. And, and obviously she's become much more knowledgeable about baseball. And, and, and I think that it also, it also works in his favor that when he goes home, that's not what they always talk about. So, so yeah, it's uh it, it is, a, it's an interesting dynamic and, and, and actually as a sidelight, I think it's one that we don't give as much, uh, maybe as much attention to in sports as, as journalists. I think the, mm-hmm. I think the husband and wife dynamic, I, I, I went into it last year with the D'Antonis in Houston and, and now with the Hinches. And I think it's something that, that really has an impact on how these guys operate a lot more than, than maybe we're used to, to addressing. And any, and any pretentious feelings that anyone through the whole club had would have been stripped away during that season based on what they experienced with the hurricane and how, while the rest of us throughout the world were, if we went online, if we watched the news, we were exposed to it, like under our control, like this was something that surrounded all of them 24 seven. And how much, how much you think that and his ability to be a leader during that time really impressed the club and the, those, the young guys on that team? Yeah, I think it did. And I, and I also think that their response helped sort of color his response. I, I know he told the story of, um, in a, in a story that we, that we had that David Fleming did when he was with the team last year, uh, mm-hmm. toward the end of the year and when they were going through all this, where he was talking to, to Jose Altuve, whose family was, you know, on a, I don't know if they were in an apartment building or in a house or something, but they were, they were worried. Obviously the players were worried. Their families were, were right in the middle of this. And, and uh, at one point Altuve looked at Hinch and he said, you know, how long do I have to play with this on my heart? And I think that 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 the depth of that <laughs> that simple statement was something that you know they were all feeling in it. And I think that that there were players there like like Altuve who were wise enough to voice it and and get it out in the open and say you know this is something that we just can't we just can't ignore. It's not like oh yeah you go to work and you forget about these things. And and I think that. You know, AJ had a, an understanding of that, and and he's he's made Houston his full time home, which I think makes a difference as well because he feels more of a connection to the city than than maybe somebody who you know bounces in and out for the off season. But um, it definitely was something that that he handled extremely well. Uh, the first home game back, he he gave a speech that was very well received and very heartfelt. And yeah, I, I think that. I think the players naturally turn to someone like him for some life experience and some direction when, when something that dramatic happens in their lives. And, and it seems like he just, he handled it really, really well and and in a very human way and not in some fashion that was just, Hey, you know, we got a job to do here. I think he understood that it went beyond that. So my final uh, question for you is how will, what do you? What is your prediction? And of course, everyone hates predictions. How do you think we'll be looking back as Hinch on Hinch, like five or ten years from now, as a pioneer? Or my question is: Is he now baptized into the other part of the manager catechism, where the only thing you do to keep people quiet long term after winning it all is to win it again? <laughs> that's that's a very good question, and I'm not sure there's a there's an easy answer to it. I think. I think all the pieces are in place for that team to 
you know, if not win it again, at least be in the conversation and, and, and obviously go deep into a postseason. Um, and, and I think that, I think that he will probably sort of become, you know, it'll sort of blur into the, the fact that, you know, AJ Hinch has been with Houston for 12 years as manager and has mm-hmm. two world championships. I think it'll probably, it'll probably turn out that, that he becomes one of the guys, you know, he becomes one of the, you know, maybe he becomes one of the Mount Rushmore guys that he was pretending to be once upon a time in Arizona. Um, But, you know, I do think that, that inside him, there will always be that, that nagging failure and that, that idea that he has to prove himself uh, every year um, just because that's, you know, an athlete's competitive nature. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, I think eventually he will, he will probably be seen as, as sort of, you know, as the head of the the new vanguard of managers who understand everything from the the most advanced analytics to you know what's in Jose Altuve's heart. <laughs> I think that that's something that you know, as you said earlier, that 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 success invites mimicry, and I believe that teams will probably be looking for the next AJ Hinch for you know, the next uh, 10 years when they, when they have openings. And I think that might, that might end up being his legacy short term. Well, I got to tell you, the fact that we're doing this story means the snow is melting, baseball is starting and life is good. I agree. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.